In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com happening and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com happening. Thanks for your help. I would have nightmares pretty much every night. I went about 12 years without a good night's sleep. I was coping with it by not dealing with it. But then my unconscious mind was like, we're going to deal with this. So when I went to sleep, my guard was down and it would just flood in. And my, you know, I, I dreaded sleep. Hello and welcome to Why Is This Happening with me, your host, Chris Hayes. Back in uh, 2016, which was, uh, you might remember, was election year in 2016. And um, you may also may not sort of remember how that ended up. But it was not a great year for Democrats, that, <laughs> that election year. And not just because of what happened in the presidential ticket, which was um, that, that Donald Trump got elected president. Uh, it's still wild to say that sentence, isn't it? But also really bad uh, downstream. Uh, there was a lot of hope for a bunch of Senate wins that did not uh, work out. And, and in some ways, it's a lesson about the fact that the top of the ticket matters so much in a presidential election years. It's very hard to sort of divide the fates up. But one of the Democratic candidates who came, who sort of overperformed the most and came the closest in the, some of the most hostile terrain was a guy who made a big splash with this ad that he put out supporting universal background checks for guns. And I'm going to describe the ad to you because it's a good visual medium where um, he he's blindfolded and he in 30 seconds, he assembles essentially a military style rifle. So he's, he's got it. He's blindfolded and he's putting it together and he's talking about how his opponent is criticizing him for not supporting guns and says, I support the Second Amendment, but I support background checks. And then he takes the blindfold off. He says, I want to see my opponent do this. It's a pretty badass ad. <laughs> He had served in the Army, and his name was Jason Kander. He was the Secretary of State for Missouri and a extremely promising young Democratic politician, and he lost by only a few percentage points in a state that Trump carried by, like, a shocking margin. And then afterwards, he was kind of a star. I mean, particularly because everyone's running around being like, who knows this new political terrain in which Donald Trump won Missouri by 18 points or something like that. Like, well, this guy, he knows it. He figured it out because he got some voters that voted for Donald Trump because he outperformed Hillary Clinton in Missouri by like 15 points. So like there's some people out there that were like, I like Jason Cannon. I like the, the cut of this guy's jib. I like his rifle assembly skills. And he became this kind of really important national voice. There was some talk that he was going to run for president of the United States. He then said he was going to run for mayor of Kansas City. And then he just announced, I'm not going to run for mayor. I'm dropping out of running for mayor. I'm dropping out of politics and public life for now because I have PTSD that I have not dealt with. And it's getting to a point where I can't function at this level and I need to treat it and I need to go and deal with that. And it was a really remarkable moment in public life. I don't think I'd ever heard anything like it, like a very prominent politician first talking about uh, struggles in their mental health, specifically a veteran talking about PTSD at that level, and then stepping back from public life to get treatment and then reemerging to talk about what happened. And that's where Jason Kander is now, and that's the bulk of our discussion today. Jason Kander is now um, working for a veterans organization called the uh, 
Veterans Community Project. He's leading their national expansion. They were already existed in Kansas City. And he's talking about what his experience was and how he got help, how others can get help. It's an extremely moving and compelling story. He's an extremely dynamic and compelling guy. I think if you listen to this conversation, you can understand why he performed as well as he did in that election and why he was seen as such a promising politician. He is just a deeply compelling figure. But also it touches on PTSD in the context of veterans who have served in combat zones in the longest period of ongoing combat in the history of the United States. I mean, Jason, as you'll hear, served one deployment. I mean, there are people that have served six deployments seven deployments in this era who have been in combat almost nonstop, oscillating in and out of country for years. There are hundreds of thousands of folks who have had to deal with mental health issues in the wake of that through the VA and other places. And I should say that in this conversation, we do talk about suicidal ideation. Um, and if that's something that's triggering for you or, uh, or you want to steer clear of, that is something we talk about in this conversation. For people that are both veterans and not veterans, people who have struggled with mental health themselves or have loved ones, there's something to find here about how someone goes about admitting to themselves that they need help. Where did you grow up, Jason? I grew up in the Kansas City area. Um, my family is uh, fifth generation. Uh, I'm fifth generation. My son's actually sixth generation now, Kansas City. Am I right that somewhere in my memory is stored the idea that the famous musical theater author, Kander, is related to you? Uh, yeah, I'm related to him, really. Um, <laughs> he's, uh, my, my great uncle, John, we're, we're really close. So he's my grandfather's brother. Oh, wow. So, uh, oh, so it's not distant at all. That's, mm -hmm. your, that's, that's your great uncle, John. No, I talked to him the day before yesterday, or maybe yesterday, but uh, for like an hour. We're, we're, we're really close, and he's been a big part of my life. He's a yeah, he wrote cabaret among other things, right? I mean, he's a legend. Yeah, cabaret, Chicago, New York, New York. My uh, God. Yeah, you'd really think I could like play an instrument. <laughs> no, I'm I'm in showbiz for ugly people. I spend a lot of time <laughs> in politics. So, what was your upbringing like in 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 your household? Um, what were the politics in that household like? Uh, well, you know, my parents were juvenile probation officers. That's how they met, and huh. then uh, and then my dad became a small business owner, and he was a cop for a while. Um, and so the politics of the house, my whole family, you know, we've been liberals for a long time. And I remember my dad used to mess with some of the relatives by pretending he voted for Bush senior. <laughs> That's the kind of household it was. But, you know, I don't remember us talking about politics that much when I was a kid. We just talked a lot about, and this sounds corny, but just sort of doing what's right. I mean, it was really more about leading by example for my parents. Like they took kids in whose families were struggling and they, we refer to them as my foster brothers. They didn't go through the foster system. So my younger brother and I had all these brothers. And that was the politics of my house was just, you know, we've been really fortunate. So we have an obligation to help other people. What was that experience like? I mean, my, my wife and I talk about this actually a lot. It's been, uh, we, we talk about doing that at some point uh, when our kids get older. I'm curious what, what that experience was like. It was really good for me because you know, I didn't realize, like, like we never wanted for anything, but I didn't realize that I was actually privileged until I got to college because growing up, even though, you know, there was money in the family, I shared everything. So T-shirts, shorts, like rooms, it didn't <laughs> matter. We didn't, you know, go on as many vacations because we had a whole lot of people to take with us. And, right. and I didn't get like 
the big G.I. Joe thing, usually, whatever it was. That's amazing. So what you're saying is it like it diluted the privilege in a way that was good for your upbringing. Either, I, that, see, that's my theory, but it may just be that my parents did a really good job of not letting me realize. That, right, you right. Know? So as a result, like when I got to college and I realized, oh, I've got a relative paying for this. That's when I thought, oh, okay, I'm super fortunate. Right. But the good thing was I was still really grateful for everything growing up. I just – I never got to have even one moment where I had any excuse to ever think like we were – it's somehow better than, you know, nothing. like It was just like we were just another family. And it was good for me. Not that money makes you better, but you know what I mean. No, of How course not. How a kid would misunderstand. Not. Yeah, yeah. When did you first start to think that you'd like to join the, the service? You know, I grew up like a lot of kids. I was really into G.I. Joe and all that. But I also, my dad had been a cop when I was really young. And I remember thinking that that was amazing, right? And so, you know, walking around wearing his his uniform, his police uniform. And for Halloween, I was always a soldier. So it was it was there. It was something I, I thought I wanted to do. But then by the time I was going to college, I really put it in this category that was the maybe one day category. I really admired service. And I thought, one day I'm going to do that. But I think if 9-11 had not happened, there was about a 50-50 chance I would have like finished law school and become like a reserve JAG officer or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But because 9-11 happened, I flipped that whole equation. And instead of it being maybe one day, it became, I'm going to do this. And then I became an army intelligence officer. So that definitely changed my track. But basically 9-11 is when I said, this is happening. How old were you when 9-11 happened? I was 20 or 21. Were you in college still? I was, yes. Yeah. So I was 20 and I was, uh, I was in my third year, which was my last year at American University. And did you enlist right after that? Well, I wanted to, but then I was in a pickup football game where I demanded to play tackle, which was pretty stupid. That is, there's, I mean, I look back at my youth. <laughs> I mean, 21's old to be making that demand, but but until I was about 19 or 20, we would get together and play tackle football, and I do not know what the hell I was thinking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you what I wasn't thinking about. The fact that one of my buddies was all-state free safety in Texas oh and was God. on the other team, and... Uh, he and I are still close, and we still argue about whether I was in the end zone on this play. <laughs> the end zone, of course, being like you know a shirt that we threw down. Like that's the end zone. And uh, anyway, tore my ACL. And at the time, the Army had a policy that you know that was an injury that you were disqualified. And I remember some of my professors, who were all Vietnam era folks, saying like, "That's great, you can't be drafted." <laughs> and I was like, "No, I actually want to go in." So I had to do surgery, physical therapy, and then by '03, I was enlisted. '02, I had enrolled in ROTC. What was that experience of just you know basic training and kind of acculturating to that world like for you? I really took to it. So I did ROTC. I did Army ROTC while I was at Georgetown Law School. And I was really supposed to be very focused on law school. Law school was comparably very boring to me as compared to being out in the woods with a compass and figuring out how to do, you know, buddy rushes 30 seconds at a time with blank rounds. I mean, that stuff was exciting. And also keep in mind, the country was going to war and right, I had joined right. for that reason. So in my mind, I was exactly like, my grandfather and my great-grandfather who had gone in but didn't have military careers. It's just the country went to war, so that's what you do. And I took to that very well from a personality standpoint. So I mm. very quickly – I remember at first feeling like I was a law student who 
you know, spent weekends and, and some evenings in uniform. And by the end of law school, I very much felt like a soldier who usually during the day had to be a law student. Were you surprised or not that you took to it in the way you did? I guess what I was surprised with was it was really hard. And, hmm. and you know, here I was, by the time I was getting ready to get my commission, I was only, I think, 24. So, you know, the two years before that, 22 to 24, there was a group of us who were grad students in that RTC program who re we referred to ourselves as the old man's club because everybody was so young and comparably spry. And here I was with this knee injury and just trying to get through it physically, but also mentally and emotionally, it was not the easiest thing. It sometimes surprised me at how tough it was, which I appreciated because by the time you start law school, not a knock on law school, but like you're going to finish, right? Like you're paying your money. You, you know, it's right. kind of like Taekwondo, right? You keep paying, they give you the belts. And, <laughs> and I was pretty sure that I was going to finish that. And whereas there were plenty of times in army officer training where I didn't know if I'd make the finish mm. line. And so that was a surprise. I don't think it was a surprise to anybody in my family that I joined. In fact, on 9-11, I heard from family members who were just saying, we know you're going to join. Just just don't do it today. So it was always sort of in my makeup. So now you're, you're a soldier. Uh, you're an officer. You have your commission and you're also a JD. Is it 2004 by that point? I got my commission May 20th, 2005. At that point, You've watched the trajectory of American foreign policy and war fighting go from a response to 9-11, war on terror, the invasion of Afghanistan into Iraq, the run-up to that, the initial invasion, then things kind of falling apart after that first four or five, six months. What are you thinking as you're thinking about the fact that you're likely to deploy into a war zone? You know, I remember election night 2004 being on the phone uh, with a buddy of mine who actually just ran for Congress this past cycle. And we were both in the same RTC program. His name's Dan Feehan. And I remember Kerry was ahead for a bit that night. And I remember us having a conversation literally about how it affected our life expectancy. I remember mm. having that conversation about who won that presidential election and how it would affect us. But that aside, for the most part, you know, I was really in the mentality at that point, and I think appropriately so, of somebody who was just going into the job. And I wasn't thinking about the politics of it that much. Don't get me wrong. I followed it. I had strong opinions about, you know, I didn't think Iraq made any sense. But because I knew what I was going into and because I knew that I planned to volunteer to deploy and I didn't know whether I'd get Afghanistan or Iraq, I preferred Afghanistan just because the mission made more sense to me. I was really much more focused on really learning my job and learning yeah. learning the craft because it, people would say to me all the time, especially when they knew I was going to volunteer to deploy, they would say, you know, but why why would you do that? You don't have to go. You, you know, you obviously you're not somebody who has to be in the service. And I would always say the same thing, which was, uh, you know, if I do my job well, then maybe some other American soldiers get to come home safely. And that sounds cornball, right? But that's just how yeah. I saw it. It made sense to me because I had been raised to understand that we had been given a lot in our family. And so therefore we had this big obligation. And so to me, it was like, I would get angry when people would say things to me about, you know, why, why would you have to go? And sometimes people would even say things like, but you have this education. Why would you go be, you know, a, a ground pounding intelligence officer when you have this law degree from Georgetown? And that stuff would make me angry because I just felt like, who are you to tell me that 
I'm better and should put right. myself, you know, I, I, I just thought that was so wrong. When did you first deploy? So I kept asking to go and then I, I got there on the ground October 2006. And I was only there for four months in Afghanistan. What were you prepared for and what were you not prepared for? You know, it's interesting. Even though you get, you get the training, um, you can't really prepare for a couple of things. The first thing is no matter how much they train you, you can't help, at least in my case, picture sort of a more conventional idea, largely from the movies and TV, of what you'll first see when you get there. Hmm. And so what I expected was what I think most people expect, which is like armored Humvees and a, and a big, tough-looking dude up on a giant machine gun up on top. And, and I just thought, that's how we'll travel. And that is not how I traveled. As an intelligence officer, and particularly with the limited resources that they were sending to Afghanistan at the time, I rode around in uh, unarmored Mitsubishi Pajeros, which is really just the Mitsubishi version of a Ford Escape. It's pretty much the same same vehicle. So that was a bit of a shock uh, in my first convoy. So yeah, from an equipment perspective, from a general like what it really feels like to be there uh, sort of perspective. But then the other thing is you get used to in, in the Army. And by that point, you know, I'd done RTC. I'd done some active duty training. I had done Army intelligence school. So I'd been in a world that in the Army they referred to as TRADOC, which is training and doctrine command. And that's pretty much where everybody is up until they get to their first job. And this was, you know, save a few months in, in Tampa and a reserve duty. This was really my first job being in Afghanistan, my first job over there. And so I had been in sort of the utopian military environment where everything works the way it's supposed to. Right. And, you know, and you, right. Right, you do with the job you're trained to do. And then I get over there and they – I was a second lieutenant, so 01, very first level of officer. And they said, well, you're replacing an 05, which is a lieutenant colonel, which is like somebody who's been in the Army 20 years and here I am, I'm like wet behind the ears. And this is, I just think, how war is. It wasn't like, well, this obviously works the way you would expect. You just show up and they say, okay, we got two possible gigs we need you to do. We have this analytical position looking at intelligence, or I guess working a, a night shift, I think it was, and then, and then you write some stuff up. And then the other thing is this job where you go out and you collect intelligence about the corruption and, and the other sort of threats and espionage and that sort of stuff, narco-trafficking, that we need to collect on because we're working with these Afghan government officials so you would just go out and you would talk to people pretty much by yourself a lot of the time, figure that stuff out, come back and write about it. And clearly the first job was a lot safer, but I was like 25 or whatever and thought I was bulletproof and also felt like, well, I came here to do something important. So I picked that one. But really the part I wasn't prepared for was the part where you show up and they're like, okay, so uh, you know, you're going to replace this guy who would usually be your boss's boss's boss. And where were you stationed? I was out of Kabul, uh, okay. Camp Eggers. I went east a bit, and but I spent a lot of time in and around Kabul. Did you like that work? I loved it. I loved every second of it. Huh. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like sometimes you're homesick. Sometimes you're just sick because you're out. You know, in my case, out on the road eating, you know, Afghan food and meetings, and they don't have necessarily the same uh, rules that right. we were accustomed to about like. <laughs> preparing food, that kind of stuff. Right. So don't get me wrong. It was still a war. There were parts that sucked. But I felt like every part of me was at full utilization so often. And that's 
you know, in some ways, I think once you've done that, there's just part of you that's always trying to get back to that for the rest of your life. Yeah, I've heard that before from other folks, from other vets. Like, were you aware of that in the moment? Like, there's times in my life, I've never uh, <laughs> deployed to a war zone, but there's times in my life where I've done things where I feel like, a, a state of flow and be a state of a kind of perfect match between the challenge and my abilities that are just right kind of tied. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm operating at full, this is hard, but I'm operating at full capacity and just being able to do it in a way that feels satisfying. Is that? Yeah, it's that, but add in just unnatural maximum adrenaline levels yeah. on, on a semi-regular basis. So for me as an intelligence officer, and I guess this would be a third thing that maybe was not what I expected. And and I've spent a lot of years sort of having to come to terms with the idea of thinking about my version of combat as combat because I never had a bullet whiz by my ear. My vehicle never blew up. I never had to kill anybody. And so I spent a lot of years saying, well, that wasn't combat. Well, I spent a lot of time, many hours at a time out, oftentimes just with my translator as my sort of backup. And Nobody knew where I was, and I would go into these meetings with armed people who I couldn't know their allegiances for sure and couldn't know for sure that I wasn't about to be kidnapped and killed. And while that is horribly frightening, when you're doing it and other people around you are doing it, it seems really normal. Right. <laughs> and it's incredible what can seem normal. And so you – while at first you're just really, really frightened – you go on to stay really frightened, but you don't realize it because it yeah. kind of just becomes a state of being. And then there are moments where you go, and the way I would always think of it was, it was I would think this is like a movie where I had one of my best contacts was um, the Afghan attorney general. And I, I thought he was a great contact because, well, one, he spoke English and two, he didn't have a real discernible uh motivation to kidnap me. <laughs> so that made for a pretty great contact. A good combo. <laughs> uh, and uh, I was fond of, of working with him. And we were in a meeting with him once, and it was myself and uh, somebody from another intelligence uh, shop that had come along. And we're sitting with him, and he's got this person with him who was a prosecutor in one of the like outlaying provinces. And he said to us early in the meeting, uh, the attorney general did, he said, don't worry, he didn't speak a word of English. And then he proceeded in English to tell us that this man has been involved in several failed plots to assassinate him. And the guy's just sitting there like nodding, like a person <laughs> does like, oh, a joke's been told, but they don't you know, know that <laughs> what it was. And then the person I was with went out to smoke a cigarette a little bit before we left. And then she came back in and she just looked just just white, like something terrible would happen. And the, and the guy on the couch who didn't speak in English had already left before that. Well, I found out when we got in the vehicle to leave that he had like bummed a cigarette and they were smoking together. And of course he wasn't saying anything. And then after a few minutes, like in perfect English, <laughs> he says, uh, he's like, where are you from? And she tells him, and it turns out he says, oh yeah, you know, I own some nice farmland in Nebraska. I mean, so stuff like that would happen. Oh. And you're just like, on the, you don't realize that you've just had this insane adrenaline moment, but you also, at the time, just think like, okay, that's like a movie. So that's that was an incredible job. How do you think about what that constant presence of adrenaline and the constant possibility of violence as just a sort of a lurking possibility, what do you think that was doing to you psychologically and spiritually while it was happening? Well, if you had asked me that a year ago, I'd have said, oh, nothing. <laughs> um, 
because I was in denial about it and because I thought it was sort of necessary to my career ambitions to continue to be in denial about it. Uh, but now I've been through about eight months of therapy and I can tell you that what it did, it did several things. I mean, one thing was that it, well, it gave me post-traumatic stress, but in the specifics, it gave me symptoms like hypervigilance. And really, it took a while for my therapist to sort of help me understand that my reactions over there by becoming hypervigilant, by always thinking about how many exits there were, by, you know, always having four different plans as to how you were going to get out of a situation, that's a really normal survival instinct in that environment. And the hard part is you come home and then you're supposed to turn it off. And another aspect to that, by the way, is that in order for me to be able to do that work, the army had to not just train me, the army had to, and I don't say this really in a negative way, they had to kind of brainwash me. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is they had to say to me over and over and over again, and this is true of every soldier, they had to get it across to me that somebody was doing something harder than me, that most people had it harder than me. And that's true no matter what your job in the army. And that's necessary because if they right. hadn't put that in me, I couldn't have gone into all those meetings because right. I would have consciously said, no, this is super dangerous. But because that was in there going, well, look, all my friends are doing harder stuff. Right. The problem is nobody turns that off when you come home. It's vitally important that that be part of you when you're there in order to do your job. But you really don't need it when you get home. In fact, it's a real hindrance when you get home because then as you start to deal with these things, you are saying to yourself, okay, other people have it worse. Other people deserve this. I don't because nobody ever sat you down and said, okay, that was some crazy shit. You need to know that. And it's not normal what you had to go through. Um, and now it's going to be hard to come out of it. And so as a result, what it did to my body and my brain is it just sort of taught me that I was in danger all the time. And then I never, well, not until recently did I unlearn that. I want to know about what your coping mechanisms were over the last several years before you addressed it through treatment. So let's, uh, let's talk about that after this break. Part of what you're identifying is that you, you didn't think there was a thing to cope with because it was what was normal and what was the product of your training and, in fact, adaptive in that environment. So it's not like, you know, if we have a traumatic experience in civilian life, like a loved one dies in a car crash, everyone recognizes that you have suffered a trauma. And whether you're a super repressed person or you're not a super repressed person or a spiritual person or not, or you go to therapy or not, there you at least recognize like, oh, there's a trauma here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I'm grieving. I'm sad. I'm, you know, I lost this person I love. What I'm hearing from you is just like there's not even the recognition. It's like that joke about the fish in water, right, where the old fish swims by the two fish and says, enjoy the water, and the young one says, what's water, right? Like, right. like what were you doing psychologically as a coping mechanism? How did you deal with the fact that the fight or flight system in your brain at some level is always engaged? Well, I kind of – it is exactly like the story about the fish in the water because I thought I was the only rational person. Uh, so for instance, well, I'll just go through some of what the last several years have been like prior to uh, dealing with this. I mean, I would have nightmares pretty much every night. I went about 12 years without a good night's sleep. At the beginning, they were nightmares that were really all about what I had feared over there, getting kidnapped. They were very specific to Afghanistan and to a happening, that kind of thing. 
And then over time, they they evolved and they started to take on my everyday environs. And sometimes they didn't have anything to do with the military, but it was the same threat. I would try to cope with that by, and I, I even wrote about this in my book, I thought I had fixed it by not reading about things that had to do with kidnapping or, you know, sometimes just avoiding Afghanistan stuff altogether. I wouldn't watch war movies, that kind of thing. I learned over the last eight months that that's avoidance and it's actually the opposite of what I needed to do. So now I, I get a lot fewer nightmares because of the therapy, but, you know, I get them sometimes, but now I know what to do. Like I will do the opposite of what I used to do. Like if I'm having real bad nightmares, I will pull up my phone and I will watch a clip of Band of Brothers or something like that. And that allows my brain to process this stuff. What wow. I, what I wow. didn't realize was I was coping with it by not dealing with it. But then my unconscious mind was like, we're going to deal with this. So when I went to sleep, my guard was down and it would just flood in. And my, you know, I, I dreaded sleep. Um, and so I would stay up. Other stuff, you know, the hypervigilance, I mean, it was, <laughs> it's kind of crazy the profession I chose, but crowds were sometimes difficult. So, if I was giving a big speech or any speech, I would shake every single hand in the room. One, because I knew that was just a good thing to do as a politician. But two, because it allowed me to kind of look at everybody and assess the threat and just feel a little more comfortable when I got up on the podium. I almost never sat with my back to the door anywhere. When I was Secretary of State, I can remember several times, people must have thought it was really strange that we had this meeting room that was like this very large room. And, and I would, I had a rule that nobody could sit behind me. And I'm, I don't consider myself to have been like a high maintenance boss. So this was very out of character. And everybody just came to know, like, don't sit behind Jason in this huge room where the, and, uh, you know, stuff like that. Now looking back, it should have been more clear to me, but because I had friends who had been in a more traditional type of combat who had had to take lives, it felt to me like saying that I had post-traumatic stress was stolen valor. And so yeah, I just yeah. couldn't do it. So you come back after this appointment, when do you first run for office? My first time on the ballot was uh, 08. So I, I started um, running in August of 07. I started uh, knocking on doors. I mean, so I, that's not that long after you come back. Yeah. And I'd been like raising money and stuff like that before that. But I started like really, really running in August of 07. No, not long at all. I, I Looking back now, I recognize I was in a bit of a hurry to not deal with myself. Yeah. And there's, I mean, it's a, obviously an extremely different thing, but there's a lot of adrenaline involved in the campaign. If you're kind of jonesing, absolutely. <laughs> if your body's jonesing for adrenaline, that's one place in civilian life to get it. Yes, and the other thing that I now realize is that, and part of this is being, uh, you know, I think is common to folks who have experienced trauma, and part of it is just general survivor's guilt that a lot of soldiers get, whether they experience post-traumatic stress or not. I felt really strongly that. I had not done enough. And, right. yeah. you know, I went over there saying like, you know, if I do my job well, I'm going to help some folks come home. And I just never, ever even came close to feeling like I had done enough. And in a lot of ways, like running for office, trying to do these big things, part of it was the adrenaline of the competition and that sort of thing. But a really big part of it and a big part of everything I was doing was just this really, really deep and unquenchable thirst for redemption, uh, a feeling that you know, I was worthy of this, worthy of coming home Because you felt like your experience in your deployment and in a war zone had not earned that redemption, that you had not done enough and you had not. Is that because you were like not in firefights? Like what, what was that? 
I think probably there was virtually nothing I could have done that would right, have made right. me feel that way. I know right, that because people now. who are in firefights and, in fact, people that you know do the bravest things imaginable feel that way too. So absolutely, a, a buddy of mine said to me once. He said. Man, somewhere there's a World War II veteran sitting around at a VFW hall explaining that, look, the guys in the front of the landing craft at D-Day are the ones who had it real bad. He was right. in the back of the landing craft. Right, right. And that's because that's how they program us. And again, I don't fault them for that. It's the lack of deprogramming that causes the problem. So clearly you're you're a young man on the make here in that like you're, you're ambitious. You come back and you're running for office. You run for the state legislature first. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yep. You win. Yep. And then from that, you go to Secretary of State? Yeah. And just to, like the whole, like how hard charging I was and like the need to just constantly be working. That state legislative campaign, I knocked on 20,000 doors. I mean, we ended up when it was a three-way race. We got 68% of the vote. I probably wow. could have dialed it back a little. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I probably didn't need to lose 15 pounds mm-hmm. knocking on doors in the neighborhoods in Kansas City. As an aside, by the way, when yeah. I walked in here, Brian, the engineer, I said, nice to meet you. And he said, actually, we met at my door like 10 years ago. I mean, oh, really? this happens to me everywhere I go in Kansas City. It is one of the real upsides of having done that is I, I kind of don't meet a stranger. That's amazing. Yeah. So when does your wife come into the picture? Uh, so Diana and I actually met when we were 17. We've been together this whole time. So she's, wow. had to, <laughs> she's had the brunt of the whole thing. And then so you go from – State legislature and then secretary of state, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. At that point, are you, I guess it's you and McCaskill are the two statewide elected Democrats, right? Actually, this is kind of amazing because it's not that long ago. But in 2012, when I got elected secretary of state, the next day, or like when I got sworn in, six out of the eight statewide elected officials were Democrats wow. in Missouri. Yeah. Wow. It was governor, treasurer, attorney general, secretary of state, one of the senators. That's wild. That feels like another. I can't believe that. That feels like yeah. another universe because that state has gone. It's amazing. So far in the other direction in yeah. such a short period of time. Yeah, yeah. They just said they had one senator, the auditor, and the lieutenant governor. And so then you ran. You ran that Senate race for the U.S. Senate in sixteen. In sixteen, right? Mm-hmm. What was that race like? That race was a whirlwind, man. I mean, you know, I had done a statewide campaign, but I had done a secretary of state's race where here's how I described it to somebody once a buddy of mine who had also been a statewide politician in Missouri. He asked me the difference between the secretary of state's race and the Senate race. And I said, you know, when you were in college and you were thinking maybe one day you'd run for office and all you really knew about it was the West wing. That was it. Like your whole frame of reference was watching the West wing. And then, and then you ran for state house and you're like, well, this is nothing like <laughs> this is the, not West wing. the West Wing. It's, it's, it's Parks and Rec, you know, right, but yes, it's not. Yes. It's not the West Wing, and that was fine. You, you found you liked Parks and Rec, and then and then you ran for Secretary of State, and there were like occasional moments where you're like, "Ooh, this is West Wingish," you know. But <laughs> you know, you didn't have all these staff, and you didn't have these people following you around. And and I told them, I said, running for the U.S. Senate in a national. In essentially a national race where it may determine the control of the Senate and it's the closest race in the country, especially considering that when you started, nobody had any idea that Missouri was ever going to even be close and nobody was thinking that way. And I told them, it turns out that's when it starts to feel a little like the West Wing. Right, right. Um, and I don't mean like glamorous. I just mean like, oh, wow, there's a lot of people here and yeah. they seem to really be interested in this. Yes, and yeah, because, I mean, I've covered politics for 
you know, most of my career. And, and one thing that always struck me early on when you're covering local races is how unglamorous it is. I mean, oh, I'll yeah. never forget watching this congresswoman in a primary who ended up losing to Ron Emanuel when he ran for that seat, just like shaking hands with elderly folks in a bingo hall on the northwest side of Chicago. And like they could not be bothered to like they didn't want to shake her hand. They wanted to listen to the bingo numbers. Yeah. And I'm watching her like sort of like try to get their attention. I'm just like, damn, dude, this is humiliating. <laughs> like, And this is one of my first bits of campaign reporting. Where I was like, oh, this is just what it's like to run for office. Like you have to kind of impose yourself on people's time. and You have to kind of beg for their attention a little bit. And you're kind of supplicant a lot. Um, oh, yeah. The way that it works in the West Wing or other kind of depictions where there's like the candidate is the principal and sort of at the top of this big totem pole or, or pyramid or hierarchy. And in reality, it's just like you're begging <laughs> like mm-hmm. a lot for people to pay a little attention or, or sign your petition or like take the lit that you have in your hand. It's every time I talk to somebody who says, hey, I think I, I may want to run for office. And they say, we we have a like a phone conversation with me. About it. Sure. OK. So we talk and I'm listening very closely at the beginning of each of those conversations, because when I ask them about like their campaign, if it started or what their plan is, if at any point in it, they say to me, like in the first few sentences, well, you know, I'm going to go to all the events and I'm and if they use the term speechwriter, like if they think they're going to have a speechwriter, you know, or anything like that, <laughs> I'm just like, I just stop him. I'm like, you shouldn't run for office because this is door-to-door sales and yep. telemarketing. That's yep. what this is. And frankly, you don't get to do the door-to-door, which I really enjoyed when you run for the U.S. Senate. But it's still, unfortunately, a whole lot of telemarketing. Yeah. Yeah, you're dialing for dollars. And that – I mean that race was you, – you kind of broke out. You had this very famous ad – where you you assembled a, an assault weapon blindfolded, right? Am mm-hmm. I getting that right? Yeah, yeah. It was my argument for background checks. Right for background checks. It's a it is a great ad. We will we'll, we'll link to that. And then you overperformed the top of the ticket, the presidential nominee in your state by quite a bit. You ran a very good race. We're not able to actually win. You come back. You've now been this person who you went to college. You. You enlisted after 9-11, then you went to law school, and you're ROTC, and then you deployed, and then you came back, and then you ran for one office and won that, and then you ran for another office and won that, and now you've run for this and you've not won. Like, what that was doing to you psychologically about who you are and what your sort of role was, your destiny, and things like that. Yeah, at the time, I, of course, didn't think about any of that. At the time, I just thought... (laughs) push it down. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. It was... uh, In fact, (laughs) there's a part in my book where I said something about... If you're really upset by everything going on in the world, just stay busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think, man, after eight months of therapy, I think I might change that advice. But <laughs> I really believed at that time, and, and I was making the argument all over the country, that, look, Missouri's still a bellwether state. And that's what I was telling everybody. And part of what I was doing was you had to you had to believe that. And even absent of that, we got well over 200,000 voters who voted for Trump and for me. I mean, we had people showing up at our rallies who were Trump people. And I was a progressive. So, I mean, I really believed in the case we were making. Our last poll, and I think also the other guy's last poll, uh, had us winning. We ran 16 points ahead of the ticket. But it turned out that that day that was 2.8% not enough because – and people forget this – Missouri actually was a larger margin for Trump than Mississippi. He won Missouri by 19. He won Mississippi by 18. So that was too much to overcome. And to be honest, I just couldn't get my mind around that at first. I mean, at first it was, 
devastating, oh, we lost. And then later in the night, it was, oh, my God, Trump won. And I guess, you know, there's no saving grace at all to Trump winning. But I suppose in the personal grief process, it that was so overwhelming. Yeah, totally. I never, I'll never forget. I uh, Jonathan Alter, who's a, also a Cubs fan, that was 2016. He and I, every time I would see him around 30 Rock, I'd we talk about the Cubs, and we were psyched. And of course, the Cubs win the World Series for the first time in over a hundred years, mm-hmm. uh, uh, four or five days before Trump's elected. Yeah. And then Trump is elected, and then I think a day after Trump's elected, I see Jonathan Alter in the green room, and he looks at me. We haven't seen him. Like, he's like, "Hey, how about the Cubs?" I'm like, "How about the Cubs? How about the Cubs? <laughs> yeah. Are you out of your fucking mind? Uh, yeah. You want to talk to me about the Cubs?" Uh, yeah, man. I remember having conversations like friends who were also, you know, in politics would call me in a couple of weeks after and they'd say, you know, how are you feeling? And I would say, you know, it was weird for me because I just lost this race and I kind of expected to just disappear into oblivion, you know, from a political relevancy standpoint. But for whatever reason, people wanted to hear more from me. And so people would call me and say, how do you feel about this? People keep wanting to talk to you. And I said, you know, it's sort of like there was this nuclear event and We've all come up from the bunkers, and I'm supposed to take solace in the idea that I've been elected leader of our group of seven. <laughs> and it was just like coming to terms with yeah. that, figuring out. And then personally, because of the stuff I was going through, I now can look back and realize that there was a part of me that was like, I have to figure out a way to keep going because I can't just sit around here and deal with myself. That is not going to happen. Right. Uh, so. What so then? What happens that makes you realize you do have to do that? I mean, I I ran into you while you were you had a, a national organization that you were working on and fundraising for that was sort of voter involvement and voter protection. There was talk about other elected office. There was talk about mayor, uh, even higher office at, at at certain points. And then there's yeah, some... I was. I mean, I'll just find out. Like I can say now, like, I was going to run for president, right? So how did I deal with it? Like, I was like, well, I'll just save the world. That's, that was, I didn't know that, that that was a coping mechanism. And also, I want to give myself some credit. It was also a sense of patriotic duty. Yeah, right. And you had just, you know, you just run 16 points ahead of the, I mean, again, like you said, in the nuclear wreckage for the Democratic Party, you know, people were sort of sifting through and finding little, little jewels from the lost civilization. Right. And you were one of them. Yeah. And, and so I'm like, okay, I guess I should do this. And you were asking like what it was like, what that feeling was like of like, I can't just sit around here. The best way to describe it is it's just this like tension. And and I would say to my wife, sometimes I would say uh, a few things I would say that now I look back and I'm like, well, that was an indicator. One was, I would say, I feel like I'm dying. And now I recognize with the help of my therapist at the VA that one of the things that happens with trauma is that once you've sort of experienced something where you actually think you might die, because you're like out there alone and you're in this room with a guy you think is bad, that kind of stuff. You have trouble not taking other things that are bad or stressful and not dialing them all the way up the meter. Right, right. Like I'm dying or or my life is endangered or my love or people I love are in danger. Exactly. And all, all three of those, like you nailed it. So that was part of it. And then also this constant, even once Let America Vote, my organization got going and sort of a dry run presidential campaign and all of a sudden we had this big team. The other thing I would say to my wife all the time was, I feel like I'm disappointing everyone all the time. Mm -hmm. And she would say, there's literally no evidence of that. But it just felt that way to me all the time. And that was me projecting out the fact that 
I was constantly disappointed in myself. And a lot of that had to do with I was carrying all this inner turmoil around and I didn't feel I could share it with anybody, including even those closest to me, like my wife. And I had just sort of settled in. I mean, by that time, it had been a decade and I had forgotten that I didn't used to be like this. And so- That's intense, dude. Yeah. So I just like, well, this is who I am, I guess. And right, I'm just tortured. I'm I'm tortured, and I can't sleep, and I have nightmares, and I'm never going to be good enough, and I'm disappointing everyone, and I got to go, go, go to keep it going. And if I let go of the kite for a second, it's all going to float away. Yeah, and if I let go of the kite for a second, it's all going to float away. And because of that, I really dislike myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's sort of a, a self-loathing and a shame that had, goes had you, over all of it. Had you never been in therapy before? I went to a guy once because I thought I have bad dreams. I'll go to a dream guy. <laughs> uh, and that didn't work because I should have gone to a right, trauma yeah, guy. The, right. Yes. The dreams. Yes. The dreams. <laughs> yeah, are and right. that was like, I went to like three appointments. Um, so, so what no, was it really. that you felt like, what got you to the point where you're like, I can't, this is not working. So there's the cumulative buildup. And then there's like the moment where I was like, this is real. Um, I had off and on had, uh, suicidal thoughts for a few years by that point, but they were usually several months apart, like real bad bouts. But they were intense. Like you would, you would have genuine, like you would go through ideation about killing yourself. Yeah. Um, you know, I, there, there are degrees of it. I mean, so I, I didn't really, I never had a plan, which I guess is an important aspect of it. Like it didn't get to that point, but, but, uh, that's where it was going. And, and so, and that was more just about like, I can't escape this. Right. And, and I also felt like a burden because here I was gone all the time and I didn't think I was any fun to live with, which that I was probably right about. And so all this was weighing on me and it was getting worse. And on top of that, everything objectively was just just objectively, professionally, things were great. The My podcast was number one in the country when it launched. The My book became a New York Times bestseller. I had decided – a few months before, okay, something's wrong with me. So I'm going to go home and run for mayor instead of president. And I'm going to go to the VA. Of course, I never did the VA part at that point. So now I'm running for mayor. It was going great. We sold $25,000 worth of t-shirts in the mayoral campaign on the first day. We raised three times as much as the other eight people in the race combined in the first three months. I mean, you know, I was going to win and, and objectively, I was like, things should be great. And I realized the campaign had been 99 days long and I had had 98 bad days. And and it was it was just getting worse and worse. And so I called the veteran suicide hotline, the crisis line. Mm. And I talked to a woman on the other end of the phone and I expected, you know, because I was like probably a lot of people, I just felt like, well, I don't really have this problem and I don't have post-traumatic stress and I'm going to call this number, but there's just something wrong with me. I'm different than other people. And the whole time I'm talking to the lady, I I was just so struck by the fact that she it, – it sounded from her voice like this was no different than any other call she'd had that day. And I sounded like every other veteran who was going through this. I could tell. And that was it for me. I just realized – and honestly, then my wife and I Googled post-traumatic stress <laughs> and read it. And it was like it was written for me. And I just kind of broke down crying and it was like, okay, I got to deal with this. Did you talk to other people that you had served with or that were also had been deployed in Afghanistan or Iraq during this period, like before that moment when you called that hotline? 
you know, one of my best friends is somebody who has post-traumatic stress and has dealt with it at the VA and on the one hand was very much a mentor to me uh, in this process. And on the other hand, and this is through no fault of his own, he had been through two deployments in Iraq of really intense in the street, door-to-door fighting. And so he was also sort of represented to me like real post-traumatic stress. Right, right. And, and that was through no fault of his own. And he would tell me like, dude, I would not have been able to do what you did. And, and meanwhile, th- you know, you were saying, did I talk to others? Throughout the years, I'd be out on the campaign trail. I'd meet veterans. I'd talk to friends of mine. I'd talk to soldiers of mine. And I had no problem counseling people and saying, look, what you experienced is real. You need to get treatment. You've earned it. It's strong to do it. I could tell other people that but not do it myself. Which is, you know, is what it is. And I think a lot of people, one of the biggest things I've heard back from folks is that my saying, look, I didn't think I did enough and yet I have this, was maybe the most important thing I said as far as other veterans go. Right. Because there's a lot of people carrying that around. Yeah. And not just veterans. Like so many people have trauma. And when I you- mean, dude, I, this is like a hobby horse of mine and I – you know, the space that you're talking about is something that I have no subjective access to whatsoever. I've never served a day. I have been fairly removed in my personal life from from the experience of war and its aftermath. But in other parts of my life, I've dealt with people. I've been adjacent to people that go through intense trauma. And whether that's sexual assault or that's abuse or that is people in their lives who have extremely deep addiction problems like there's a lot of trauma walking around out there and a lot of people who think that the trauma that they, they didn't experience isn't real or isn't important enough or isn't messing them up or even know the vocabulary to talk about that. And so I think you're right that like the context of this is bigger than the specifics of PTSD in the context of war. There's a lot of people with a lot of trauma that is messing them up that, you know, really could stand to use to talk to someone. Yeah. And when I was living this life that was sort of you know, made for, you know, that package you put together of a politician and you roll it out as a product and this guy's got it all together and he's going to lead and nobody would ever come and talk to me about their issues. And and then I put it out in the world, what I had been through, and I thousands of people, including, mm-hmm. you know, people who are very close to me who I had no idea what they had been through. And once I had put that out there, people would come up and they would talk to me about it. And then I could help them and I could say, you know, you should go see somebody. And the thing about that is you don't have to be somebody with hundreds of thousands of social media followers to make that difference. If you in your workplace say, you know, this is what I've been dealing with and I go to a therapist for this. One, it's important that people have the courage to do that because it it's going to be to your benefit because people around you will support you through that. But also because you are then doing that in your orbit because there will be somebody else right. in your social orbit or your workplace who will go out and maybe save their own life because you did that. Did you do therapy through the VA? I did, yeah. And what was that experience like? Fantastic. That's great to hear. I've, I've, one, you know, I asked this – one of my best friends in the world actually is, is a psychologist for the VA and I'm always sort of in awe and admiration of the work he does and it seems like – they do really amazing work. They really do. And, you know, the, there's you got to separate two things. There's the VA as far as the system and the way it's been set up and some of the difficulties of it, which the organization I work with now, Veterans Community Project, helped me navigate that. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But then the other part of it is the actual clinical side, the treatment. It's just outstanding. And when I 
when I made my announcement, I said, I'm going to go to the VA in Kansas City and get help for this. So many people and well-meaning people reached out to me and said, you need to go to a private provider. You have means, you have insurance. Why would you go to the VA? And I told people, I said, look, I want to talk to people who talk to people like me all day. And that's what I did. There was never a moment where I said to my therapist at the VA anything and he went, what? Or like, whoa, that's weird. (laughs) Never a moment. It was just, it was more like just a nod and like, yep. And here, let me explain why you feel that way right now. Because what he dealt with was combat post-traumatic stress. And that specialty, like you said, you tried, you tried someone (laughs) without that specialty and it didn't work. Right. It's, it's also, by the way, you know, why the VA, it's so important that we protect it as it is because you know, now I, now that I'm enrolled there, I go to the VA for other stuff. I, my primary care is there. I, I'm thinking about getting shoulder surgery. If I do, I'll do it there. But it's not like it's just, oh, they have a doctor who would do the surgery on my shoulder. It's like the people who do that work there understand, oh, well, this injury may be from the fact that this guy probably carried a rucksack long distances or that, you know, right. that it's just when you work with people who all had the same occupation at some point, you know, you're just able to get right to what might be going on with them a lot faster. It's overly reductive or tried to be like, what's the big lesson here of the <laughs> Jason Kander journey? But, but you know, you and your wife have been talking about this new organization you're starting. And clearly, you know, you feel like it's important to talk to both vets and non-vets about getting treatment and talking to someone and mental health. Like, what's the thing that you came out of this now knowing about yourself or about the world or about life on the planet Earth that you didn't know before? Uh, Well, first, I want to be real clear. You know, the organization I'm working with, Veterans Community Project, I'm leading the national expansion, but it was started by some awesome combat vets three years ago. Right. Yes, I'm sorry. uh, Sorry. It's okay. I just, you know, I want to make sure that um, I'm not, uh, you know, trying to steal their their thunder because what they've done is amazing. Um, I I feel like I have two uh, roles that I want to play right now in the world. I mean, both of these are second to, I'm really focused on being a dad and a husband right now in a way that I haven't, and I can't even say haven't had the opportunity to do over the last several years. I didn't have the sense to do over the last several years, right? And not even sense, like I just wasn't capable of it. And now I am, and I am flipping loving every, I mean, I'm coaching my son's baseball team. So that's the number one stuff for me right now. And then second to that are two things. One is demonstrating for folks that post-traumatic growth is a real thing and it's achievable and it's worth going after as hard as it can be to go after it. And that's just sort of in, you know, talking to you right now and that kind of thing in a way that a lot of people will hear. But then the other part is this organization, Veterans Community Project, uh, it's based in Kansas City, and it, we call it VCP. I toured VCP six weeks before I made my announcement about stepping out of public life, and I was just blown away by it. I mean, they they do two things. They help any veteran who walks in the door. They've served thousands of veterans in Kansas City, and it's a walk-in clinic, and they just fill in any gap that exists in veteran services for any veteran. And the second is they've effectively ended veterans' homelessness in Kansas City by creating a village of tiny homes with on-site wraparound services. And those two things are really inspiring. And I saw it and I was amazed by it. And then I just went back to like call time and campaigning and, you know, as you do on the campaign trail. And then I made my announcement six weeks later and I found that there were a bunch of hoops that I wasn't exactly sure how to jump through in order to get the mental health services I needed at the VA. And I was really struck by that. 
because I was thinking, man, I got this phone full of influential contacts. I've got a law degree from Georgetown. I've got pretty high-level government experience. I'm not homeless like a lot of the people VCP serves, and I'm kind of overwhelmed at the moment right. by what to do here. And so I called up these guys. I knew uh, Brian, who's our CEO. He had interned for my Secretary of State's race back in the day, and he had given me the tour. And he's like, yeah, man, come in. And so they just treated me like any of the That's thousands awesome. of vets. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it made a huge difference. They handled my paperwork, got me into the mental health stuff at the wow. VA quickly. And I was so turned on by that, that as I started to get better and, and treatment started to really take hold for me, I started hanging around and they had had inquiries from all over the country. People wanting them to expand into other cities. And they kind of said, look, you've created a national organization before. Why don't you help us do that? And so it was a natural for me. So now that's what I'm doing. I want to solve veterans' homelessness and serve every veteran who's fallen through the cracks. And I think VCP can do that. Jason Kander uh, is a veteran of the uh, war in Afghanistan. He's also a former state legislator and secretary of state and U.S. Senate candidate and an all-around uh, extremely fascinating and open-hearted person. Uh, it was really great to talk to you, Jason. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chris. Good to talk to you, man. Once again, my great thanks to Jason Kander. That organization is called the Veterans Community Project. We have a link on our website. He's the founder of Let America Vote. He's a former Secretary of State of Missouri. Also, I want to give a shout out here to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is you should put in your phone, actually, because you should have in your phone if you encounter a loved one who you think needs it. It's 1-800-273-8255. Also, mentalhealth.va.gov. There's a phone number to call, a number to text. You can chat online. If you are a veteran and you're feeling in any way the way that Jason describes himself feeling, you can go there. As I said in the uh, conversation, one of my best friends in the world is a psychologist at the VA, and I'm just always amazed at the work they do and the, the diligence and dedication that those folks have over at the VA for all the critiques that have been at the sort of bureaucratic level. The people working there are truly amazing people. And as always, you can send us your feedback to the email address withpod at gmail.com or on Twitter, hashtag withpod. We always read all of those. Why is this happening is presented by MSNBC and NBC News, produced by the All In Team and featured music by Eddie Cooper. See more of our work, including links to things we mentioned here by going to NBCNews.com slash why is this happening. Primary season is here. If you've got voting questions, we've got voting answers. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote. You'll find when and how to vote in your state's primary election. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote today.